You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. This is my second lecture in a course devoted to Kierkegaard and uh, Newman. And having said a few things about both men, I then turn to Soren Kierkegaard. Although he was born after Newman and died before him, there are reasons, I think, why it's useful to begin with the thought of this fascinating thinker. I mentioned as well that in talking about the literature as I did in the first lecture, I am adopting one of two possible approaches to Kierkegaard. The two approaches are the right one and the wrong one. The wrong one, in my view, is to say that what he says in the point of view of my work as an author need not guide our understanding or reading of the works of Kierkegaard. This is just a retrospect. It's an effort to rationalize after the fact what he did and so forth. I think that's manifestly wrong, that he didn't write the book before he began the literature which includes, as we saw, pseudonymous works and works published in his own name, does not mean that he didn't have, in the way that writers have when they're about to write or as they write, clarity as to what it was that he was doing. And what is it that he was doing? I noticed, too, this copy of the point of view of my work as an author has my name in it and inscribed again, January 1952. You'll see how dog-eared it is and so forth. I've been reading Kierkegaard all my life, and I've often thought that there are two major influences on what I laughingly call my thinking. And apart from Thomas Aquinas, it is Kierkegaard. He says this on page 29 of this ancient edition of the point of view. But above all, do not forget one thing, the purpose you have in mind, he's talking to himself, the fact that it is the religious you must bring forward. If you are capable of it, present the aesthetic with all its fascinating magic. Enthrall, if possible, the other man. Present it with the sort of passion which exactly suits him, merrily for the merry, in a minor key for the melancholy, wittily for the witty, and so forth. But above all, do not forget one thing, the purpose you have to bring forward, the religious. When one reads either or, repetition, fear and trembling, stages on life's way, with this in mind, looking, as we're instructed to do, at the interplay between these works and the edifying discourses, which appeared in little bunches along with these works, they take on a significance which I think they would not otherwise have, and I think that's the significance that Kierkegaard clearly intended. At the end of the last lecture, I mentioned that while the literature is, first of all, discussed in the point of view as moving from the aesthetic through the ethical to the religious, there is another movement in the literature that shows up at the end of that first wave. Let me refer you to a passage in the point of view to capture that. The movement described by the authorship is this, from the poet, that is from aesthetics, and then from philosophy, that is from speculation, to the indication of the most central definition of what Christianity is, from the pseudonymous either or, through 
the concluding unscientific postscript with my name as editor to the discourses at communion on Friday. He is here gathering together that first wave of the authorship and showing that the pseudonymous writings actually describe two movements, and they're very closely related here, but they needn't be, and that is from the aesthetic, from the poet, to the religious, from philosophy to the religious. But then when he talks about the literature, it sounds as if you move from either or into the works of another pseudonym, the one representing the philosophical, and then you move on to the religious. I think it's compatible with the point of view of my work as an author to see these as relatively independent. And I say relatively because what Kierkegaard is referring to as the aesthetic represents a universal aspect of what might be an impediment to Christianity, being drawn by the things of this world, preferring them to their maker, and so forth. This is a perpetual possibility of everyone. So there is a sense in which overcoming the aesthetic in one or the other of its forms, the witty, the melancholy, the merry, and volume one of either or certainly gives us that whole spectrum of possibilities. Overcoming that is, we might say, a common human task, whereas overcoming philosophy is not perhaps something that everyone has to look to. What Kierkegaard does with a pseudonym called Ioannis Climacus, John the Ladder, literally, is to rescue Christianity from intellectual confusion, from the sort of misunderstandings, mistakes, misdescription that occur in universities. Huh? And since not everyone goes to the university, at least not yet, this remedy is not something that's going to be universally necessary, perhaps, or at least not in the way in which he handles it here. So this is a special kind of therapy, we might say, that is undertaken by the second direction of the literature, those works which are attributed to, as I mentioned, Ioannis Climacus. Huh? Now, people have wondered where he gets these names. Sometimes the pseudonyms are just funny, like Nicholas Notabene and Hilarious Bookbinder and things like that. We know that no one is going to think there's someone in the Copenhagen phone directory, if there were one then, by that name. Well, no one thought any of these people were anyone other than Kierkegaard. So one of the anomalies of the pseudonymous literature is that it wasn't meant to conceal the ultimate author, the author of the author. So that when Kierkegaard talks about the impact that he wanted his literature to have, one of the things that he mentioned is the discrepancy between the kind of seriousness that begins to emerge as one follows this literature, and of course he's assuming, as all authors do, that everyone reads all of their books and with an attention that is probably reserved for sacred scripture, but he just assumed everyone was following every detail of the production and they would see how serious, this is religious finally. He's sneaking into the religious. He's trying, if not to preach to us, to do something almost worse, make us preach to ourselves. So that this recognition of the seriousness, what he then wanted to do was to prevent someone saying, well, look at the, what a serious man he is. I mean, look at the way he lived. This is obviously someone whose writings we ought to take seriously. Au contraire. Kierkegaard describes himself with a kind of Gothic imagination that we find in the Diary of the Seducer as trying to appear to his fellow citizens of Copenhagen as a ne'er-do-well. 
he tells us that he would show up at sort of busy places in town at the busiest times, so people would think he's just lounging around Copenhagen all day long. He would go to the opera in the evening. He loved opera. He'd go to the opera, he'd move around, say hello to everybody through the lobby. When the curtain went up, home he would go to write a book. So that he was trying to deprive anyone from relying on the author of the authors to take it seriously. He's always trying to throw the reader back on his own resources, the reader's resources, and not allowing him to lean on Kierkegaard as, well, this guy's serious, I better take him seriously. It's just the other way around. How can I take seriously a fellow who seems never to be home, who is never doing a day's work? When does he write these books? That's the sort of attitude that he tried to generate in his contemporaries. Huh? You and I have to do what the point of view suggests that we do, and that is to compare the pseudonymous works with the works written in his own name and see if that interplay, that dialectic, has the effect that Kierkegaard intended. Now, back to Ioannis Klimakos, the pseudonym Kierkegaard chose for representing the movement from philosophy to religion from philosophical confusion to clarity as to what it means to be a Christian. Ioannis Klimakos actually shows up in a work of Kierkegaard's, an unfinished work, that was a kind of philosophical novel, one could call it that. And what it is, it's called, actually, Klimakos is in the title of the work, Ioannis Klimakos or De Omnibus Dubitandum Est. One ought to doubt, subject everything to doubt. And in this, the knowledgeable university person would recognize, would catch the echo of the great project of modern philosophy that begins with Rene Descartes, where Descartes is saying step one in trying to acquire or to ensure that you have true and certain knowledge is to subject any candidate for knowledge to withering scrutiny and doubt. And if there's any doubt possible as to the truth of a claim, it has to go methodically out the window. And finally, as you remember that great drama of Descartes, having set aside all propositions having to do with truths about the external world, and having set aside all propositions having to do with mathematical truths, he seemed to be devoid of any candidates for true and certain knowledge. And then, as we know, the epistemological light bulb went on over Rene Descartes' head, and it occurred to him that even if everything that he thinks to be true is false, it cannot be false that he who is thinking exists. Cogito ergo sum. And this becomes square one of modern philosophy, self-consciousness, certitude about one's own existence as a thinking something. And from that, everything else is thought to fall. Now what this requires, what methodic doubt asks us to do, is to subject everything to doubt. And Kierkegaard likes most, well not most, but this has occurred to other undergraduates and graduate students. What would it be like if somebody literally called everything into doubt? What if he began to wonder if the floor was solid, whether the walls are there, whether the light, whether there's anyone else here? Am I all alone? And as the Jewish joke goes, who's asking? I mean, it's a kind of project that we can imagine undertaking. And as soon as we would undertake it, we would see we can't doubt everything. 
If you're going to go over and see whether the door is real, you're going to assume the solidity of the floor, the distance from you to the door, and so forth. So what Ioannis Klimakos de Omnibus Dubitandum S is, is this kind of development of some young man who takes seriously what his philosophy teacher tells him. You must call everything into doubt. He says, okay, I will. And of course, then they're trying to stop him. Huh? Oh, we didn't mean that. We only mean in class, not out there in the real world. And so, But this is a serious kid. And he figured, if that's the way to get to the truth, let's try it. And of course, the thing is unfinished, but the implication is clear. The project with which modern philosophy begins is an impossible one. It's not something that we just don't have the nerve or the stamina to bring to fruition. You can't. No human being can do that. And of course, that's going to raise for Kierkegaard, who is, what is a human being on this view of the project of philosophy? What is a human being? What does it mean to exist? What is the relationship between thinking of that kind and moving around in the world? in the kind that the young man in the De Omnibus Dubitandum S tries to do when he tries to implement universal doubt. That use of the term, of the name, Ioannis Klimakos, is in one sense irrelevant and in another sense is a kind of promissory note as to what's going to come, the pseudonymous works which are attributed to Ioannis Klimakos, and they are two. On the one hand, a relatively small work, short work, which is called Philosophical Fragments. And then a relatively large work, this one, which is called the Concluding Unscientific Postscript to the Philosophical Fragment. And Kierkegaard liked little jokes like that. He liked the PS to a letter to be six times as long as the letter. He wanted the sequel to the fragments to be this big, massive, and turgid book as he says, I'm putting the historical costume on the problem of the fragment. So what I want now to do, and I hope this is sufficiently clear as an introduction, I'm going to turn now and concentrate on these works of the literature which depict the movement away from philosophy towards a true understanding of what it means to be a Christian. And I'm doing this because, one, this is offered primarily as a philosophy course, and we want to see what is the underlying critique of philosophy that is in these particular books, and we will consequently be looking at the fragments and in the postscript with that in mind. The Philosophical Fragments, the first of the works in the literature that is attributed to Ioannis Klimakos as an author, is called Philosophical Fragments. But it has on the original title page, first of all, a thematic question of the work, and then responsible for publication, S. Kierkegaard. And this is true as well of the postscript to that. And it's as if Kierkegaard, as master of theology, is coming closer to things that he wants to take responsibility for. He doesn't want to distance himself from them as if these are thoughts that someone might have, maybe he had in the past and so on. But this is closer to a transition that he himself is making or had to make. Here's a thematic question. Is an historical point of departure possible for an eternal consciousness? How can such a point of departure have any other than a merely historical interest? Is it possible 
to base an eternal happiness upon historical knowledge. It's possible for people to notice that motto and then to go on and read the book and talk about it and never allude back to it. But it is indeed the thematic motto of this particular work. So I'll turn now to the opening, just enormously important discussion of the philosophical fragment, which is again in the manner of Kierkegaard's communication. It's kind of bleak. We're, we're carried along. We seem to know what's happening. And all of a sudden, he's going to slam us with something that is going to reveal what he is really up to. And he's writing, of course, to philosophers, to people who have studied philosophy in universities. And he's going to be consequently using somewhat technical, not terribly technical, knowledge or presuppositions that might not just be the ordinary topic of conversation down at McDonald's, let's say. But any student of philosophy, anyone who has taken courses in the International Catholic University, will find these as familiar as the back of his hand. So the chapter one of the fragments is called The Project of Thought. And it asks, how far does the truth admit of being learned? Now, anyone who studies philosophy knows that this question of teaching and learning, the acquisition of truth, the formation of concepts, how it is that we formulate and find that we have formulated true propositions and so forth. This is part of the stock and trade, so to speak, of, of philosophers. So we're going to feel in familiar territory as students of philosophy as we read this particular discussion. Kierkegaard immediately begins to talk about how it is that learning can be explained. How do we move from not knowing something to knowing something? What kind of a transition is that? How does it come about? Does somebody else bring it about? Do we bring it to what? That's the kind of question that he wants to ask. And as I say, in a learned way, he's going to refer us to one historical position that answers, that addresses that particular issue. And that is the position that we find in the Platonic dialogue. And what Plato is, as you may know, going to give us is something that is one theory of learning among others. Huh? And Plato, in ways that we needn't recall in any detail, is going to say it's not possible that the individual, changeable, singular things of our ordinary experience can explain knowledge. Why not? Because these things come and go. And if we know something, we know something that is timeless. It doesn't refer simply to the things that were existing at the time that we made that judgment, say all the squirrels in South Bend or wherever in a particular year. But if you start talking about the nature of the squirrel, the gray squirrel, the black squirrel, the red squirrel, and so forth, you're not just talking about these individuals that come and go. You have grasped something essential that transcends the individual and so forth. Well, Plato develops that, as you know. And then he says, how then do we get knowledge of what a squirrel is if it doesn't seem simply to be read off these evanescent and changing instances of squirrel? And as you know, Plato develops the notion of ideal entities which exist independently of time and space and the sensible things of our ordinary experience are participants in, are effects of those ideal entities and the function uh, epistemologically of these individuals is to remind us of those ideas. So Plato develops a notion of learning as recalling. Huh? 
The things of this world call us to the ideal entities, which according to one of Plato's story, the soul was in direct contact with before birth. And when the soul is put in the body, the eye of the soul is blinded, we forget all those things, and we have to laboriously, through these little hints and images, remind ourselves of ideal reality and so forth. Okay, that's Plato's doctrine of how we come to learn. We don't, we remember. So what we call learning is simply being reminded to remember by the things of this world. Now, we might think that this is, as it is, simply one theory among others, and that Ioannis Klimakos has brought it up, and then if he's gonna talk about something else, we're gonna say, well, he's just talking about one among any number. You probably know several other accounts, philosophical accounts of how we come to know, and whatever he says about this one is going to be relevant to that one, but not to these others that you and I know about, but Climacus is mentioning. What Climacus actually does is to look at this very specific platonic account of how it is that we come to learn, and he notes certain aspects of it which turn out to be general to any possible philosophical account. And what are they? They're this, that insofar as one human being is a teacher and the other is a learner, the teacher is merely an occasion for what the learner comes to know. He doesn't cause it in any strong sense. Socrates used the metaphor of the midwife. The midwife doesn't give birth, it enables the pregnant woman to give birth to her child. So it is the teacher doesn't cause knowledge on any account, philosophical account of knowledge. He occasions it. He sets things up in a certain way so that the learner learns. And if the learner learns, he learns, not the teacher. St. Augustine said in the famous remark in his De Magistro on the teacher, we do not send our children to school to find out what the teacher knows. Huh? We want them to come away knowing themselves, knowing by themselves, and not merely repeating what the teacher said. When that's all that's going on, then that's what they know, what the teacher knows, but they don't know whether it's true or not. If they know it, they know it's true. And a further feature, the teacher doesn't cause the knowledge. And two, it's assumed that the addressee, that the learner, has the capacity when you give someone an explanation, you assume that your addressee's got the wherewithal to follow you and understand it. And when he understands it, he understands it. So the teacher, first of all, is an occasion. The learner has the capacity independent of the teacher. The teacher presupposes it. He doesn't give the capacity. And thirdly, when this happens, and of course it happens at some particular time, when it happens is inessential or incidental to what is known. So that if I know some of the internal angles of a plane triangle are equal to 180 degrees, I hope I remember that correctly, if I know that, I don't have to say, and after it, January 13th, 1936, or something like that. And some of you say, what's that? You say, that's what it suddenly dawned on me, that the sum of the internal angles of a plane triangle I mean, that's irrelevant to it. And yet it's relevant to my biography. And maybe I do have a diary in which I record my geometrical accomplishments and others in that way. I date them. But 
one doesn't expect that to be important. The teacher doesn't say, I'll never forget that snowy day in 1918 or something like that. I mean, that's nice for him and maybe his children, but it doesn't mean anything to you when you're trying to learn, say, the mathematics that the teacher is teaching. So three factors emerge from reflecting on the very particular, peculiar, one among many accounts of learning that we find in Plato, three factors that are true of his and anyone else's. And that is that to have a teacher and a learner is to have a teacher who is merely an occasion, a learner who has the capacity independently of the teacher, and learn something that is fairly timeless in the sense that when it happens is not part of what one knows. That's merely a biographical or autobiographical add-on, which again might have personal interest, but it's not likely to electrify a geometry class to find out when Professor Bumelklotz might have learned the parallel postulate, or indeed when oneself might, except, as I say, in the privacy of one's own diary. So what we have here, what might look like just a little learned allusion to what you and I know about Plato and so forth, but it's only about Plato, it's not about what about all the other, what about Aristotle, what about these other accounts that have been given? What we see emerging from this treatment of the Socratic teacher is any human teacher and any human learner any situation like that is going to involve the three characteristics that Ioannis Klimakos is putting forth. One, that the teacher is an occasion and not a cause, that the learner has the capacity and doesn't receive it from the teacher, the teacher presupposes it, and third, that time, the tense, the when exactly all of this happens is unimportant. So what, we might think, huh? So what Climacus is trying to say, look, this is what, as philosophers, we would give, however the versions might vary, this is the sort of thing we're going to say in answer to this thematic question, how far does the truth admit of being learned? What are the conditions for teaching and learning? And the great assumption of philosophy, Climacus's by implication telling you, are these three things? This is what we mean by teaching and learning, right? Huh? And we say, yeah, but what's the big deal? Well, we find what the big deal is when Climacus says, now, let's just as an experiment in thought, let's imagine what a non-Socratic teacher would be. So the question that arises, once we have described, or once Climacus has described the Socratic teacher, which again, I can't emphasize this too much, he doesn't mean the teacher as Socrates or as Plato describes him, and then there are all these other philosophical ones. The way Plato describes teaching and learning is peculiar to Plato, but again, what Climacus wants to imply and to draw out is, wouldn't it be the case that any philosophical account of learning and teaching would involve factors that are involved in the Platonic account, but aren't peculiar to it. And they are, again, the three that I've mentioned now, usque ad nauseam, the teacher is the occasion of our learning, not the cause. Insofar as we learn, we have the capacity to learn. We're not given that, but it's being guided or our capacities are being elicited 
by what the teacher says. And thirdly, the time is not part of what we learn. The time at which we learn is not part of what we know when we learn something or other. Having laid that out and having, again, universalized these as characteristics of any philosophical account of learning, Climacus then says, what would a non-Socratic teacher look like? What would a non-Socratic teacher look like? And, of course, what he can do is simply to negate the three aspects of a Socratic teacher. And he said, you know, if there were a non-Socratic teacher, well, then he must be not simply the occasion of our acquiring truth, he causes the truth in us. And if we are related to a non-Socratic teacher, we don't have the capacity to receive the truth that he offers us. That would be true in the Socratic, but we're talking about non-Socratic. It's just an experiment of thought he's suggesting. Let's give it a go. But if there is a non-Socratic teacher, then I don't have the capacity to receive the truth that he offers. And he must give me the capacity as well as the truth that I receive. And finally, in this case, when it happens, when it happens, is going to be absolutely crucial. It's going to be, you might say, the fullness of time. And then you might say about the learner, he doesn't have the capacity. It's not simply that he doesn't have the knowledge that he will come to have as the result of learning, but that he is negatively related to the truth that is offered to him. You might say, Climacus says, that he's in a state of, well, sin. Call it sin. Huh? And then, well, you can see what he's doing. Huh? What he's doing is in imagining huh, what a non-Socratic teacher would look like, he begins to recall and to provide occasions for his reader to say, wait a minute, if Christ is a teacher, he's not a teacher like any human teacher. If any human teacher's activity is going to be explained by these philosophical accounts of teaching and learning, they're not going to be applicable to the case of Christ the teacher. Now, I'm making it much more explicit than it is in the fragments because Kierkegaard sneaks in these sort of Christian ways of talking about the state of the learner as being a state of sin. The teacher, well, he's buying the learner back from a condition of sin, so we can call him a redeemer, huh? and so on. He sneaks those things in, and then at the end of this chapter, he imagines his reader is getting really mad and saying, come on. I mean, here you, you offered us something that was supposed to be novel, and you're telling us what everybody knows. Huh? And the suggestion of the book, in effect, at this point is, do we know it, or have we forgotten it? Have we forgotten it? And what the suggestion of the two works of the pseudonymous law authorship, the first wave, that are attributed to Ioannis Klimakos is, that there is a special philosophical confusion about what it means to be a Christian. And one way in which this confusion manifests itself is to think that we can talk about Christianity as a doctrine like the other doctrines that are taught in a university, let's say. And everyone has the capacity to understand the truths of Christianity, don't they? They can take three credits in it. 
or six or get a master's or a doctorate in theology and then won't they know what Christianity is? And what Climacus is going to try to suggest, he's going to succeed in suggesting in this work indirectly and in the concluding unscientific postscript, is that we, 19th century Danes, live in a time when Christianity has been confused with learning, when Christianity has been confused with knowing, with knowledge, when Christianity has been reduced to the status of other disciplines in the university. Which other disciplines are such that the Socratic teacher is an adequate understanding of what's going on? But is it an adequate understanding of what is going on when we relate to Christianity, when we are disciples or students of Christ. And in this indirect way, what Climacus is saying is that think about it, huh? think about it. Now, that tells us something about the addressee of the philosophical fragments, doesn't it? Because if you didn't have this residual sense that Christianity is not like the situation described, in the Socratic teacher, the shock or the surprise or the anger or the irritation wouldn't occur. So one of the things to notice about the Kierkegaardian literature generally, and this is true generally, is that he is not in the business of explaining to you what Christianity is. He assumes that everyone who reads him already has the information. And the great problem is the information can be confused with the assimilation of it. And that's his problem, that's his interest. Indirect communication is meant to provide an occasion for us to realize what we have already committed ourselves to, at least nominally, or would say we have. And these reminders are either going to make us feel a little sheepish about assumptions that we've made say, intellectual assumptions that we made about Christianity, or they might just drive us away from it. And we'll say, well, that is what it is. I'm not going to adhere to it. Huh? But what emerges from this? And this is, of course, common to the Kierkegaardian literature, but it has a special valence in terms of the second movement away from the philosopher to Christianity. The 19th century, he's saying, in effect, is beset by confused notions of what Christianity is. And this confusion comes from philosophy. Becoming a Christian is something different from becoming a philosopher. Becoming a philosopher is to learn truths occasioned by a teacher, books, whatever, that one didn't actually know before, and to be able to defend and argue and that sort of thing. But there's nothing about that that requires any but these ordinary explanations or a theory of knowledge that would embody the three characteristics of the Socratic teacher. And what Kierkegaard's indirect point is, we have gotten into the habit of thinking of becoming a Christian as if it were a matter of the 50 drachma course, as if it were a matter of going through a university, getting a degree and so forth, acquiring knowledge. Huh? And while knowledge, of course, is information, is absolutely necessary, that isn't the key. Kierkegaard, as I mentioned, is presupposing all the information imaginable about Christianity in one sense of what it is. 
he couldn't presuppose that. Nothing that he does would work. As he says someplace, if I were a missionary and I had to tell people for the first time about Christianity, I would have to employ a lot of direct communication. But once he had done that, once the missionary has done that, the real task is not just to be clear in your mind as to what Christianity is, but to incorporate it into one's daily life. That's the real task. That's how one becomes a Christian. And becoming a Christian is not like becoming a philosopher or becoming informed about Christianity, let's say in a course in comparative religion or something like that. That isn't how you decide whether or not Christianity is true for you. So Kierkegaard is aware, lest we think otherwise, of this informational level of Christianity. And his point is that we have that to a fault. This is 19th century Denmark. Everybody knows. They can chatter about the most arcane aspects of Christian theology as if that, being adept at that, were what it means to be a Christian. So he's making a point that is as old as Christianity. Be ye not hearers of the word only, but doers also. If there were a single text to put over Kierkegaard's literature, perhaps that would be it. That's its point. So it's not a unique one, but it's one that we constantly need reminders for. And at any given time, there is a special kind of reminder that is necessary. Doubtless, the peculiarities of Kierkegaard's indirect communication would not be relevant or applicable to the beginning of the third millennium, perhaps, perhaps not. It's perfectly conceivable that they wouldn't, but something like what he did would be certainly relevant for the task of those who are trying to become a Christian. Notice something else, given this, that while the Socratic teacher is distinguished from Christ as the teacher, there is something Socratic about Kierkegaard's Christian teaching because he is not able to give what he is reminding his fellow Christians of. He's assuming, in the case of nominal Christians, that in some sense they already have it. So what he is is an occasion. Huh? He's an occasion. He is a Socratic teacher within Christianity. He mentions this, or Ioannis Climacus does in the fragments. There is a kind of transposition of this as a method, but not as presupposing the three factors of the Socratic teacher that I mentioned before. Who's the enemy here? Who's the enemy? If we think of that movement from the poet to the religious, we might say the enemy is within. Everyone carries with him the possibility of that kind of being diverted from the Christian task in his passions and his emotions and the like. But in the case of the movement away from philosophy, we're talking about a very special milieu. And presumably, in the Kierkegaardian critique, there is embedded a criticism of what has been going on in philosophy. And he has very definite people in mind. Anyone who reads Kierkegaard is going to become aware of the fact that he was totally disenchanted by Hegel. But we shouldn't, when we studied, as he said, I translated him into Danish to get a firmer grasp on what he was saying and so forth. But when he was disenchanted by Hegel, it was almost total. But prior to Hegel, we have Kant. And Kant has a very important work for what Kierkegaard is after here called Religion Within the Limits of Reason Alone. And what Kant is in fact saying is the New Testament is a beautiful book. 
All we have to do is to remove all the miracle and all claims for some kind of knowledge beyond human kin and so forth. And then we get a nice sort of ethics that is, as a matter of fact, just about what any number of people might come up with if they put their minds to how people ought to behave. So that the Sermon on the Mount begins to emerge. Well, wouldn't anyone say, would, don't the great religious or moral teachers, don't they say something like that? In other words, this is not the dumbing down, but the devaluation of Christianity. It's bringing it within the limits of reason alone. So it's merely something you know. If it's true, it's true with the same punch as anything else that you would hold to be true. Jesus isn't special. What he said isn't special. Our accepting it isn't special. It's all within the limits of reason alone. Hegel carries on in that particular tradition saying things like philosophy is the truth of religion, as if somehow one had to subsume religion into philosophy and then it takes on its true value. It has to be validated in short by the philosopher. Hegel puts it this way in his philosophy of history that the Christian is obliged not only to love God but to know him. And how do we know God? Well, history is the providential unfolding of the divine causality. So the way we come to know God is by knowing history. And to which someone might object, well, history is just fraught with contingencies, with things which might not have happened. Remember that slogan or motto at the beginning of the fragment, how can that possibly ground knowledge of the truth of Christianity? And what Hegel blissfully says, well, you're talking about ordinary history. You're talking about the valet's eye of history. I am talking about philosophical history. And philosophical history is such that it sees the necessity with which things happen in history. So the emergence of Christianity is almost like the emergence of a conclusion from antecedent premises. And the philosophical historian says, right on time. Huh? comes Christianity, just as I would have expected, and so forth. Kierkegaard can't have too much fun with this. Huh? He describes Hegel's explanation. He's always about to show us how all this is necessary. And Kierkegaard, on one occasion, said, Hegelianism is like a house. You go buy it, and there's this for sale sign. And you're taken by the house. You go back and forth. And one day, you go in and ask about the price. Huh? And you find out it's the sign that's for sale, not the house. Huh? And so too with Hegel, there's this vast promissory note, but you're always dashed when you ask, well, how actually do you, it's a big mistake. That's finally Kierkegaard's. This is a rock bottom mistake, thinking that Christianity is an intellectual task of that kind, that this is the way you establish its truth, that there's some kind of technique that is common to our pursuit of truth, which you apply to Christianity on the basis of that, you're going to be able to say whether or not Christianity is true. This is total and utter confusion Klimas wants us to see. We don't accept the truths of Christianity because we have arrived at them by means of argument, because we took a class, because we suddenly had this human insight as we were reading the Psalms or something like that. That isn't the way it comes. It's a gift. It's a grace and it is unworthily had by those who have it, not that they earned it in some way by taking nine credits as opposed to six or something. So this kind of reminder, as soon as it's made, we figure that's obvious, but Kierkegaard doesn't make it in this direct way. He makes it obliquely and indirectly so we make the 
comparison. And then if certain assumptions can be made that we really want to be Christians and so forth, we're going to see the discrepancy and then want to do something about it. Now, in the course of this, in reminding us that religious faith, Christian faith, is not something that is achieved on the basis of the usual kind of inquiry and arguments that define most of the discipline in a university, Climacus will go beyond that. And in our next lecture, I want to talk about the way in which he calls into question, it would seem, any possibility on our part of coming to knowledge of the divine by way of the arguments or discourse which are common and widespread, say, in disciplines other than theology in the university, in short. Climacus is going to deny the possibility of natural knowledge of God's existence and some of his attributes. And this, from a theological point of view, scriptural point of view, of course, raises difficulties because in the Epistle to the Romans, in the famous text which has stood over discussions of these matters from patristic times, St. Paul, in writing to the Romans, says that having recalled their misbehavior and calling them inexcusable, why are they inexcusable? Because they can, from the things that are made, come to knowledge of the invisible things of God. Pagan Romans and they're held responsible, their actions are said to be inexcusable, not on the basis of any subsequent conversion, but because the world is a sufficient book to tell them there is a God to whom they're responsible, and acting in the way in which they have is consequently inexcusable. Kierkegaard, like many Protestant thinkers, will simply wipe that off the map and explain the scriptural passage in another way. And he will do it for reasons that anyone ought to attend to. They're not reasons that are trivial or in any way to be dismissed. I think he's wrong, and we'll try to show how he is. I think he's wrong to deny that it is possible to come to knowledge of the existence of God. And I'll do that, first of all, kind of quickly. Climacus, the author of the fragment, is not satisfied was saying that you can't prove the existence of God. He says you can't prove the existence of anything. Huh? To prove the existence of anything is to presuppose it in order to prove that it exists. And he takes this to be a real clincher. Huh? And is obviously he takes some satisfaction from it. And it sounds as if there's something to be said for it, as of course there always is for something which may turn out to be wrong in order to prove whether or not there is a certain planet in a certain galaxy relative to other planets in that galaxy and so forth, you have to have a description of it. What are you looking for? Huh? So it looks as if you already know what you're looking for. And when it shows up, well, what's the surprise? Huh? It's something like that is what Kierkegaard seems to have in mind when he says that you can't prove the existence of anything, therefore you can't prove the existence of God. Every proof of existence presupposes the existence of that whose existence you purportedly are proving. Therefore, applied to proofs of the existence of God, they all presuppose the existence of God, so they're obviously not producing it. Now, along with that, he would say, it's as if the argument brought about the existence of the thing whose existence is being proved. Now, there are a number of things. This, I think, is very wrong-headed, and it tends to equate causality, natural causality, and causality in knowledge. 
What causes my knowledge is not cause of the thing of which that I know. So it's not if I have a proof for the existence of that planet I mentioned before that somehow my process of proving or my verification of it brings the planet into existence. Obviously not. So in some sense, if we prove the existence of something, its existence is presupposed to our knowing that it exists. But what we're talking about in a proof is how do we come from not knowing it exists to knowing that it exists. And the fact that we have to have a description of it in order to look for it doesn't mean that we've already settled the question. In a murder mystery, when the detective goes looking for the perpetrator of the crime, he doesn't know who that is. And if it's a certain kind of mystery, it might turn out that there wasn't any crime or that there wasn't any victim. Think of the mystery of Roger Ackroyd, for example. I mean, you've got a suicide rather than a murder. I hope I'm not giving away the plot of one of Agatha Christie's best mysteries for those who appreciate mysteries. But the detective is trying to establish the existence of something. That doesn't mean that he's already established the existence of something. He knows what it would be like to find the one responsible for the murder, but that doesn't mean he knows that there is such a person even, let alone who it is. These are elementary things, and great minds make elementary mistakes. I think Kierkegaard here is simply misled by the difference between causality in the real order and causality in the order of knowledge. What causes our knowledge, again, is not cause of the thing, knowledge of which we have, of the existence of that thing. Those things that are causal in the real world are not always causal of our knowledge. In the case of God, he is the first cause. We're going from effects to try to establish that they demand that kind of cause. But we need, of course, some nominal definition of the thing whose existence we are out to prove. Kierkegaard probably could have been stopped in full flight when he's developing this and been reminded of the posterior analytic of Aristotle and said, yeah, you know, there's something. But what's really motivating him and what leads one not to take too much pleasure in this kind of calling into question what such a great mind meant is what motivates him. And what Kierkegaard is really after is the suggestion that proofs will establish the specific truths of Christianity and make faith unnecessary. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.